Okay, so welcome back to another lecture in contract law. In this one, we're going to pick up the thread from the previous lecture on the doctrine of intention to create legal relations. Now, as you recall from the previous lecture, I noted that this doctrine is a kind of interesting modern quirk or addition to the basic rule on the formation of contracts. It has its origin point, its first clear judicial pronouncement in the case of Balfour v. Balfour, and it has to do with this notion that there are some kinds of agreements that do not carry a presumption of an intention to create legal relations, and there are other kinds of agreements that do, and which kind of agreement you're looking at in a particular case will determine whether or not it is likely to lead to a binding legal contract. Now, at the end of this lecture, I'm going to come back and consider whether this doctrine of intention to create legal relations makes sense. But for the first portion of it, what I want to do is to look at different categories of agreements to which courts attach different kinds of assumptions. So there's three types of agreements that we're going to consider here in this lecture. There are domestic agreements, social or in kind of friendship-related agreements, and then commercial agreements. And the basic rule of thumb here is that courts presume that there is no intention to create legal relations in the case of domestic and social agreements, but that there is a strong presumption of an intention to create legal relations in the case of commercial agreements. So let's run through some examples of this, starting with domestic agreements. Now, obviously enough, the case of Balfour v. Valpfer is itself an example of a domestic agreement to which there is no presumption of an intention to create legal relations. Are there other examples? Well, let's mention an Irish case here, a case called Rogers v. Smith, which is a Supreme Court decision from July 1970 in Ireland. So the facts of this case are that Rogers, the plaintiff, his father handed over his money lending business to Rogers on the express agreement that Rogers, the son, pay his mother's housekeeping, rent, and other expenses from the profits of the business. The father also told him to retain four pounds per week for himself from the business. So Rogers paid the mother's bills, but he never retained the four pounds per week for himself. The father subsequently died, and Rogers was given a bill of 300 pounds for his father's hospital care. So Roger's mother then told Rogers to pay the father's hospital bill out of his own money and then said, When I am dead and gone, you will be able to claim anything you may have spent on me. So that's a slightly awkward formulation of words, but I'm guessing what she was saying there was that he could reclaim the £300 for the father's hospital bill from the mother's estate when she was dead. And sure enough, when she did die, that's what he did. He sued her estate for the money that was owing to him. Now, there are a bunch of evidential issues in the case as to exactly what had been said between the mother and the son. But, in any event, the Supreme Court held that there was no binding agreement between the mother and the son on the grounds that this is a domestic agreement and there's a presumption against an intention to create legal relations. So just to be clear here, because some of you might be a little bit confused by the facts, there is initially an agreement between the father and the son for the transfer of a commercial enterprise, a business, now, that wasn't up for a debate in this case, but that's probably going to attract an intention to create legal relations because that's a commercial enterprise that's being exchanged between the parties. The problem arises with the second agreement between the mother and the son around the payment of the, ho the father's hospital bills. And that's the one to which they argue there is no presumption of an intention to create legal relations. 
Now, I just actually want to quote some passages from this judgment because it's one of the clearer Irish statements or endorsements of the doctrine of the intention to create legal relations. So this is from Justice Budd in the Supreme Court. He says the following, It was further submitted that the matter of the intention of the parties to the alleged contract requires particular attention in this case. These parties were mother and son, and if an agreement can be spelt out of the conversations between them, it was contended that the surrounding circumstances and the words used lead to the conclusion that the parties did not intend to any agreement, which could have been said to be come to, and this was not to have legal consequences and not to be enforceable, but was rather a purely family matter and not intended to have such legal consequences. Having regard to the background to the conversations between the plaintiff and his mother, and the indefiniteness of the evidence, both as to the making of any binding agreement and as to its terms, the plaintiff has, in my view, failed to establish his case. There is no sufficient evidence of the intention of the parties to enter into a contract having legal consequences. So that's an interesting statement by Justice Budd, because what he's arguing or pointing out in this particular case is that there's a kind of epistemological uncertainty arising from the facts. We don't know exactly what was said between the mother and the son. We only really have the son's word for it. But the general presumption is that there's no intention to create legal relations in the case of an agreement between a mother and a son. And so he hasn't introduced sufficient evidence to rebut that presumption in this particular case. Now, there are a bunch of other cases on this notion that domestic agreements don't typically have a presumption of an intention to create legal relations. And probably the most interesting case in many ways is an English case called Jones v. Padavatten. This is a 1969 decision. And it's maybe of particular interest to you listening to this because it's an agreement reached between a mother and her daughter about the payment of her education. So the facts of this case are somewhat involved or complex. So what you have is you have a family of Indian descent, and I mean here the Indian subcontinent, living in Trinidad in the Caribbean, all part of the former British Empire. And so the daughter of this family gets a job working at the Indian Embassy in Washington, D.C., but her mother isn't particularly happy about her choice of career, and she wants her to move back to Trinidad. So she encourages the daughter to quit her job in Washington, D.C., go to London to study to become a barrister at Lincoln's Inn in London, and then come back to Trinidad to practice law. Now, the part of the agreement here is that the mother said that she would pay her daughter £42 per month to qualify as a lawyer, and would also pay for her accommodation in London, starting in 1962. Subsequent to this, the mother also bought the daughter a house in London, and the daughter had to use any rental income that she had from the house to support herself in London and through her education. Now, it seems from the facts of the case that the daughter didn't particularly want to become a lawyer, and she took a very long time to complete her studies, much longer than originally expected. So having bought this house for the daughter in 1964, the mother subsequently tried to repossess the house in 1967, but the daughter argued that she had a contractual entitlement to live in the house at least until she had reached the end of her studies in law. Now, the case was heard initially in November of 1968, and by that point in time, the daughter had completed her Part 1 exams to study to become a barrister and was about to embark on Part 2 of her exams. 
and the court then had to decide whether the mother had the right to repossess the house. Now, despite the fact that the daughter had clearly acted to her detriment here, she had quit her job in Washington, D.C. to study to become a lawyer on her mother's wishes, and despite the fact that there would have been hardship to her as a result of any repossession of the house, the court held that the mother was entitled to repossess the house because there was no enforceable contractual agreement between the mother and the daughter, and the majority of the judges in this case based their verdict on the doctrine of the intention to create legal relations. So I'll just read a couple of extracts from the judgments in this case. The first one here from Lord Justice Dankworth's kind of clearly sets out the fact that the decision here is based on the doctrine of intention to create legal relations. So what he says in the decision is, This case is a most difficult one, but I have reached a conclusion that the present case is one of those family arrangements which depends on the good faith of the promises which are made and are not intended to be rigid, binding agreements. Balfour B. Valfour was one case of a husband and a wife, but there is no doubt that the same principles apply to dealings between other relations, such as between father and son and mother and daughter in this particular case. Now, you've got to bear in mind that the doctrine of the intention to create legal relations, as I mentioned in the previous lecture, is a presumption, and it's possible for the parties to introduce evidence to rebut the presumption. So why didn't the daughter rebut the presumption? Wasn't there sufficient evidence in this case to suggest that there was, in fact, an intention to create legal relations? Well, this is something that's taken up in the judgment of Lord Justice Fenton Atkinson in this case, and he says the following, which I think is an interesting kind of detailed exploration of the facts involved in the case and why the presumption has not been rebutted. So he says the following. There are three matters which seem to me to be important. Number one, the daughter thought that her mother was promising her $200 a month or £70 per month, which she regarded as the minimum necessary for her support. So this was at the point in a time in which the daughter was going to quit her job in Washington, D.C., and she expected that she was going to get about 200 US dollars per month to support her studies in the UK. But the mother, in fact, had in mind British West Indian dollars. So 200 British West Indian dollars, which equated to about 42 pounds per month. And that was, in fact, what she paid. And those payments were accepted by the daughter without any sort of suggestion at any stage that the mother had legally contracted for the larger sum. Number two, when discussing the arrangements for the purchase of the house, and the new arrangement was made for maintenance to come out of the rents, many material matters were left open. How much accommodation was the daughter to occupy? How much money was she supposed to have out of the rents? If the rents fell below an expected price, was the mother to make up the difference, and so on. This whole arrangement was, in my view, far too vague and uncertain to be itself enforceable as a contract, but at no stage did the daughter raise these issues. And then number three, it is perhaps not without relevance to look at the daughter's evidence in cross-examination. She was asked about the occasion when her mother came to visit the house, and she, knowing perfectly well that her mother was there, refused for some hours to open the door. When asked to explain this conduct, she said, I didn't open the door because a normal mother doesn't sue her daughter in court, and anybody with normal feelings would feel upset by what was happening. Now these answers, and the daughter's conduct on that occasion, provide a strong indication 
that she had never for a moment contemplated the possibility of her mother or herself going to court to enforce legal obligations, and that she felt quite intolerable that a purely family arrangement should become the subject of proceedings in a court of law. So you can see here that um, Lord Justice Fenton Atkinson sees from the facts in this case that there isn't sufficient evidence introduced to suggest that there was an intention to create legal relations. And in fact, some of the conduct of the parties suggests that they never intended for this to be a legally binding agreement. Now, before we leave the case of Jones v. Padavatan, there's also just one other judgment I want to mention. This is the judgment of Lord Justice Salmon in the case. And this is interesting because he reaches the same ultimate conclusion as the other judges, but for a slightly different set of reasons. So what he actually finds is that there is a contract, or there was a contract initially, but the contract lapsed due to the failure of the daughter to complete her studies within a reasonable period of time. So what does he say in the case? He says, The promise was to pay the allowance until the daughter's studies were completed, and to my mind there was a clear implication that they were to be completed within a reasonable time. It may not be easy to decide what is a reasonable time. The daughter, however, was a well-educated, intelligent woman capable of earning the equivalent of over £2,000 a year in Washington, D.C. It is true that she had a young son to look after, but making all allowances for these factors and any other distraction, I cannot think that a reasonable time could possibly exceed five years after November 1962. So the fact that she had taken more than five years to complete her legal studies suggests that the contract had lapsed. And so the daughter no longer had a right to stay in the home. So as I say, this is interesting because it shows that there's disagreement between the judges here. One of the judges, at least, thinks that there was a legally binding contract between the mother and the daughter. It just happened to lapse. The other judges think that there isn't a binding contract and that the evidence suggests there was never any intention for this agreement to be legally binding. So yeah, look, I mean, Balfour v. Balfour is the locus classicus for the doctrine of intention to create legal relations, but I think Jones v. Padavatan is probably the more interesting and useful authority because it involves this detailed examination of the facts and whether or not the presumption is rebutted in this case. So as you can see from these three cases, Balfour v. Balfour, Rogers v. Smith, and Jones v. Padavatan, the general presumption is that there isn't an intention to create legal relations in domestic agreements, can that presumption ever actually be rebutted? Are there any cases in which the facts clearly establish that there was an intention to create legal relations? Well, there are some kind of marital domestic partner cases whereby if the relationship between the partners is on the verge of breakdown, particularly if the parties have already separated, then in those circumstances, the presumption can usually be rebutted. So let me just mention two cases on this point. The first case is Merit v. Merit, which is a 1970 English case, Court of Appeal. So in this case, the Merit's marriage broke down. Mr. Merit went to live with another woman. He then agreed in writing with his wife that he would pay her £40 per month if she would keep up the mortgage repayments on the family home. He also agreed to transfer the house to her once the mortgage was repaid. So the wife did this. She repaid the mortgage from the £40 per month. And once the mortgage was repaid, the husband refused to transfer the house to her. And she sued to enforce their agreement, and he argued that it was not legally binding due to the presumption against an intention to create legal relations in family arrangements. So uh, Lord Justice Denning in this case said that the presumption had been rebutted due to the state of their relationship. So he says the following. The first point taken on behalf of the, the counsel for the husband 
was that the agreement was not intended to create legal relations. It was, he says, a family arrangement, such as was considered by the court in Balfour v. Balfour and in Jones v. Padavatton. So the wife could not sue on it. I do not think that those cases have any application here. In such cases, the domestic arrangements are ordinarily not intended to create legal relations. It is altogether different when the parties are not living in amity, but are separated or are about to separate. In those circumstances, they bargain keenly. They do not rely on honourable understandings. They want everything cut and dried. It may safely be presumed that they intend to create legal relations. So, I mean, that seems like a fair enough observation when a domestic partnership is on the verge of breakdown you don't have that kind of good faith negotiation that you would ordinarily have and so it seems fair to say that the presumption is rebutted or does not apply in those cases now there's a similar irish case much older case actually from 1923 called courtney v courtney and here you have a married couple the husband appears to have been very abusive and cruel to the wife due to this the wife left the family home and she later returned her wedding ring and watch to the husband. In May of 1921, in the presence of the local parish priest, the husband agreed to pay her £150 in discharge of all claims of every nature and kind that she might have against him. She later then petitioned for a divorce, a menso et thoro. So this isn't really a divorce in the modern sense of the term. It is really a separation agreement within a marriage. It doesn't actually dissolve the marriage. So technically, the parties are still married. Now, the husband argued in this case that because they had reached this agreement between himself and herself in front of the parish priest, that he would pay her the £150 in discharge of all claims of every nature and kind, she was legally bound not to bring this petition for separation. And ultimately, the High Court here agreed. They held that the agreement reached in front of the parish priest was, in fact, legally binding, and so prevented her from bringing any such action. So this is a slightly odd set of circumstances. Just to be clear about it, in order for the wife's petition for separation to succeed, the argument here was that the agreement reached between herself and the husband in front of the parish priest would have to be not legally binding. If it is legally binding, then it prevented the petition for separation. Now, is there any example of the presumption against the intention to create legal relations being rebutted in the case of other kinds of domestic arrangements or agreements? Well, there are some, but it's always really going to depend on the facts here. And one thing that the courts have said or suggested is that if one of the parties has acted to their detriment significantly, this may suffice to rebut the presumption against the intention to create legal relations. So one example of this is the case of Parker v. Clark. So in Parker v. Clark, it's an English case from the 1960s, the plaintiffs were a married couple, and they agreed to sell their house and move in with the defendants, who were another married couple. In fact, they were an uncle and aunt of one of the plaintiffs. So they're all connected by family relations here. Now, the plaintiffs agreed to share the expenses, and the defendants promised the plaintiffs that they would get the house in their will if they shared expenses. About a year after they moved in, things began to deteriorate between the parties and the plaintiffs left the house and they brought an action for damages against the defendants because they had acted to their detriment and had lost out on the right to the house that they had agreed to. And in this case, Lord Justice Devlin held that there was in fact an intention to create legal relations and he couldn't believe under these circumstances 
that the defendants really thought that the promise that they had entered into with the plaintiffs would have no binding legal implications. One final point here before wrapping up. Obviously, many families have businesses together. They run companies together. These are considered in the eyes of the law to be commercial enterprises. And within family businesses, there is a presumption in favor of an intention to create legal relations. And we'll come back to that anyway in a moment. Okay, so much for domestic agreements. Let me now move on to the second category of relationships that I wanted to discuss, which is social agreements. Now, the general rule of thumb here is that in a social agreement, there is no presumption of an intention to create legal relations. The problem here is that unlike domestic agreements, which are you know between immediate family members usually, social agreements is not a well-defined category of agreements. But it if I were to define it or give you some illustration of it, it seems to cover agreements reached between extended family members, friends and acquaintances in non-commercial settings. So, look, for example, if you go out for drinks with your friends and you have some kind of agreement, maybe even a spoken agreement about the payment of for rounds of drinks, let's say, the presumption will be that that is not a legally enforceable agreement. That's a social agreement reached in a non-commercial setting between friends and acquaintances. So that's maybe one illustration of it. There are also obviously illustrations from case law, though let me just mention a couple. So one of the classic illustrations of this, which actually predates the case of Balfour v. Balfour, so this was at a point in time when the doctrine of intention to create legal relations was not as clearly pronounced or articulated in the law, but may have been implicit in the law is the case of Lenz versus the Devonshire Club, which is from 1914. So this is a, involving a golf club and an agreement reached between the members of a golf club. So Lenz was victorious in a competition run by his golf club, but they did not give him the prize, and so he sued them. But it was held in this case that there was no enforceable agreement as no member of the club or participant in the competition had intended for the competition to give rise to binding legal relations. Now, this is a little bit of an odd case, and I don't want to suggest that it is of kind of general precedential value. You might wonder if you enter a competition with any sports club, are they not legally obliged to pay you? It's probably really going to depend on the facts, okay? But whatever, for whatever reason, the court decided in this particular case, it was an informal arrangement reached between the members of the club. It wasn't intended to be legally binding. And obviously, there are also other kinds of competitions, sports competitions that are maybe commercially motivated, professional sports competitions. And then there are other kinds of competitions that are run by commercial enterprises, which clearly do give rise to a presumption of an intention to create legal relations. And we will, in fact, be discussing some examples of this later in the year. Another case here that's worth mentioning is the case of Simpkins v. Pays, which is a 1955 English decision. So here we have Pays, who was a lodger in Simpkins house. So they're kind of they're acquaintances or friends or something like that. And every week, Simpkins, Pays, and Pays' granddaughter would enter a competition in the Sunday newspaper. Simpkins would fill out a coupon in Pays' name, and all three would then share the entry fee and postage. Now, one week, they happened to win the competition, and they won £750, but Pays refused to pay Simpkins one-third of the money. So, like, this is clearly a fairly dastardly thing to do. And Pays argues in court, when Simpkins brings him to court, that 
well, you know, there was never an intention to create legal relations here. This is a purely informal arrangement reached between acquaintances, people who happened to be living together. And the court held that although this agreement was in fact informal and would maybe ordinarily have a presumption of no intention to create legal relations, there was sufficient evidence in this case to suggest that there was an intention to create legal relations. The circumstances of the agreement were such that the parties were clearly part of an informal syndicate for this competition, and so they had this agreement that they would share any prize money arising from their entry into this competition. What about other kinds of informal agreements? So suppose a friend of yours always drives you to work or to school or to college, and you pay part of their travel expenses, like you agreed to share the cost of petrol. Does that give rise to a binding legal agreement? Well, this actually used to be an issue of some importance in the UK because there was the old Road Traffic Act of 1930, which drew a distinction between commercial and non-commercial drivers. And the distinction hinged on whether the driver was carrying a passenger for a reward of some kind. So, you know, if your friend is bringing you to work and is receiving a reward in the form of payment for travel expenses, that might turn them into a commercial driver. So this was a matter of some importance. So there's a couple of cases which try to figure out whether these are, in fact, you know, binding commercial contracts. So the case of Coward versus the Motor Insurers Bureau of 1963 involved the following facts. Uh, Mr. Cole used to drive a mo- motorcycle to work, and he regularly gave a lift to one of his colleagues, Mr. Coward. And Mr. Coward made contributions, sorry, contributions to Cole's expenses, and an issue then arose as to whether Cole had carried Coward for reward. But in this case, the court held that he had not. And in the judgment, Lord Justice Sellers said, we should be very reluctant to conclude that the daily carriage by one party of another to work upon payment of some weekly or maybe even daily sum involve them in a contractual relationship. But there is a later case then called Albert versus the Motor Insurers Bureau. These are all cases brought by insurance companies because that's where the distinction between the commercial and the non-commercial drivers really matters. So this is a case involving truck drivers. And in that particular case, very similar set of facts involving somebody you know, carrying a passenger and being paid some travel expenses for it. Lord Justice Cross argued that sometimes there might be a contract between the parties, at least in relation to completed journeys. So the fact that the parties would not typically or ordinarily sue for the enforcement of this contract does not mean that they did not intend to create legal relations. And that's an important idea that you find in some of the case law as well. So yeah, I mean, that's social agreements. Again, the general rule of thumb here is that they wouldn't ordinarily attract an intention to create legal relations, but there are certainly facts or circumstances in which that presumption can be rebutted. And if I were to tell you my kind of gut feeling or instinct on this, I think courts are probably more inclined or more willing to rebut the presumption in the case of social agreements than they are in the case of domestic agreements between you know, immediate family members. So this then brings me to the last category of agreements that I wanted to discuss, which is commercial agreements. Now, the basic rule of thumb here is that in a commercial agreement, there is a very strong presumption in favor of an intention to create legal relations, and it ordinarily takes a lot to rebut that presumption. So a commercial agreement here is really any agreement involving a commercial entity, namely an entity that is acting for profit or on a profit-seeking basis. 
So if one of the parties to a contract is a commercial enterprise, it's usually assumed that they intend to create legal relations through their promises. And one of the best cases that illustrates this idea is the case of Esso Petroleum Limited versus the Customs in Excise. It's a 1976 English case. It's a simple enough set of facts, but kind of interesting. So it involves a promotional scheme that were run by Esso Petroleum, or sorry, that was run by Esso Petroleum during the 1970 World Cup, a very famous World Cup for those of you who are interested in the history of football or soccer. This was the last time that the Brazilian team featuring Pele won the World Cup. So as is common enough, commercial enterprises run promotional schemes associated with sporting events. So this particular promotional scheme consisted of so-called World Cup coins that featured the faces of English players on the coins. Customers of Esso Petroleum could get one World Cup coin for every four gallons of petrol that they purchased, with the hope obviously being that they would try and collect the full set of coins, get all the players. The British Customs and Excise argued that Esso owed purchase taxes on these coins because they were part, sorry, that because there was a contract for the sale of these coins with the customers. In other words, the Customs and Excise argued that Esso were in essence legally selling the coins in return for the purchase of petrol. If I, as a customer, purchase four gallons of petrol, I get these coins in exchange. Esso, contrarywise, argued that there was no contract for the sale of the coins. The argument was based on the claim that there was never an intention for the promotion in question to create a legally binding relationship between ESSO and its customers. So the setup here is actually a little bit akin to Carlisle versus Carbolic Smokeball, that ESSO was running this promotional scheme and they claimed that look, there was never any intention for this promotional scheme to give rise to binding legal relationships. But the majority of the House of Lords in this case held that there was an intention to create legal relations. So if I just quote from the judgment of Lord Justice Simon, he said, I am not prepared to accept that the promotion material put out by ESSO was not envisaged by them to create legal relations between the garage proprietors who adopted it and the motorist who yielded to its blandishments. The garage proprietors put the material out for commercial advantage and designed it to attract the custom of motorists. The whole transaction took place in a setting of business relations. In the second place, it seems to me in general undesirable to allow a commercial promoter to claim that what he has done is a mere puff, not intended to create legal relations. The coins themselves may have been of little intrinsic value, but all the evidence suggests that Esso contemplated that they would be attractive to motorists and that there would be a large commercial advantage to themselves from the scheme. So again, even though the coins themselves may have been relatively valueless, they were part of a legally binding contract. And this promotional scheme, given that it arose in a commercial practice and was designed to assist or promote the selling of petrol, is one that attracts an intention to create legal relations. Now that, as I said, that was the majority verdict. There were dissenting views. So Viscount Dilhorn in the case argued that this was just a gift of a free coin and wasn't part of a contract. But again, that wasn't the majority view in the case. And the general rule of thumb here is that it's pretty difficult to rebut the presumption that there is an intention to create legal relations in commercial contexts. That's not to say, however, that it is impossible. And so it is possible to rebut the presumption if you write down explicitly a statement between the parties, agreed between the parties, 
that you did not intend for the, the agreement to give rise to binding re legal relations. And so actually, this is sometimes something that you do see nowadays among in some promotional schemes run by companies, and that they state somewhere in the terms and conditions that it's not intended to give rise to legal relations. And a case, anyway, that illustrates this between commercial partners is an old English case, again, of Rose and Frank Company versus J.R. Compton and Brothers, where the commercial parties there reached an agreement which included the following clause. Which, and this clause stated explicitly, This arrangement is not entered into, nor is this memorandum written as a formal and legal agreement, and it shall not be subject to legal jurisdiction in the law courts of either the United States or England. So what they were signaling here was that this was clearly not intended to be legally binding. It was just an honor agreement between two commercial entities. So you'd really have to include wording of that sort in an explicitly agreed statement to avoid the presumption of an intention to create legal relations between commercial parties. Okay, so that brings me to the end then of this topic on intention to create legal relations. So let me just uh, you know, briefly summarize. This doctrine of intention to create legal relations is an interesting modern accretion or development in contract law. I mean modern in the sense that it's about 100 years old, or at least it's 100 years since it's been firmly confirmed as part of the law. Uh, contrary to the name, although it is maybe indirectly about intention, its practical application is not really to do with intent to contract. It's more to do with the presumption that attaches to different kinds of agreements. And in case law and in textbook discussions of it, there's usually a division drawn between different categories of agreements, so domestic agreements between immediate family members, social agreements between extended family members, friends and acquaintances, and then commercial agreements between at least one, where at least one party is a commercial enterprise, attract different presumptions. The first two categories of relationship the presumption is that there is no intention to create legal relations. And the last category, there is a strong presumption that there is an intention to create legal relations. But bear in mind, these are always presumptions. And it is possible to introduce evidence to rebut those presumptions. Now, I should maybe tie this in a little bit with the doctrine of consideration, because one of the things that we discussed in lectures is whether the doctrine of consideration makes sense and should be abolished. You know, do we actually need parties to exchange something of value between themselves in order for there to be a binding agreement. Some people have argued that we don't. Uh, Brian Simpson, who's a fairly well-known you know, British legal theorist and historian, has argued that the doctrine of intention to create legal relations should replace the doctrine of consideration. And so that kind of gets us back into the argument about the viability and desirability of the doctrine of consideration. And that's something you should maybe consider or discuss I mean, one rebuttal or counter-argument to Simpson's claim is that really the doctrine of intention to create legal relations is doing something quite different from the doctrine of consideration. That's a view that some people have defended. I don't know if I agree with that. I think they probably are doing something quite similar insofar as they're both intended to kind of limit the scope of contractual obligation. But that said, it's not immediately obvious to me that the doctrine of intention to create legal relations is the best replacement for the doctrine of consideration. And that's something I touched upon in my lecture on the desirability of consideration. Okay, we're going to wrap up on that.